Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Good day, my lovely listeners, my titans, my warlords, and my enforcers. Today I bring you a Swedish tale, narrated in the audiobook format, without music, and straight to your lovely ears. A bird of prey, the hunter. The connection between the two, primal at its core, but not mutually shared, of which the hunter in this relationship is, and always would be, the prey. Your Swedish tale is The Falcon, written by Per Halström, and take note of the narrative structure here, the story focus, and what the author is trying to convey through this tale. So turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and let's listen to the story of the Falcon and its masters. Renard's eyes took the colour of the day, dim lusterless and dark at twilight, gleaming molten gold when the sunshine flitted across his hair and outstretched neck, so that they sparkled with widening and contracting flames as they looked out over the fields toward the blue haze against the slanting red of the dawn, or towards the rustling of hairs in the thicket of frightened birds and swaying branches. Indolent and proud with his glance, the reflection of gilded steel on a sheathed dagger, or the luck piece on the brown bosom of a gypsy girl, indolent and proud too, the rhythmic motion of his naked feet, and the line of his arms as he laid himself down at full length in the passion of the moment, with his hand under his head, and heard the horns jubilating in the distance and the earth quivering with the thud of huntsmen. But when it grew quiet, a quiet wonderfully intense, as if spread out in a doomed vault of restless waiting, with two black huddled specks that rose in circles at the top, then Renard raised his glance as he leaned on his elbow, his eyes wide and lips half parted. And when the specks came together and fell, one subsiding in broken curves, the other dropping always above it in a line straight as a spear. And the blue welkin rang again with voices, and the riders galloped forward to see the falcon and the heron finish their fight. The boy ran up close. He screamed with delight when the falcon, still trembling with ador, was lifted on his master's glove. Its wings drooped and its eyes blinded under the hood. He often followed along to Sir Engeron's stableyard and saw the falconeers bathe the yellow feet of the hunting birds in metal bowls, drying them carefully, as if they were princes, children, each with its crested cloth, and caressing their necks till they shut their naked eyelids and dreamed against the shoulders of the attendants. Renard would have given ten years of his life, or one of his ten fingers, to be allowed to hold them like that, the proud, silent creatures. But they might not be touched by everybody. They were noble. They had each its glove, ornamented according to its rank, each its hood with embroidered pattern, 
each its special food, and people talked to them in a strange, archaic speech with elaborate etiquette. Renard almost blushed when he met their great eyes filled with languid repose, especially before Sir Engeron's white Iceland falcon, which had a crimson hood, a gold and crimson glove, a jest with silver bells on its foot, and a glance full of proud disdain and the yellow sunlight of heroic story. The young birds, which still quivered with rage over their captivity, and dreamed under the night of their hoods of hunting free, and of lifting their necks to scream, birds that were being tamed by hunger and darkness, them he might sometimes lift out of their cages. He might show them the light, and see them first totter with blinded eyes, and claws clasped about his wrist then grow more calm, as their pupils contracted, almost gentle indeed, when he gave them a bit of warm, bloody meat. But them he cared not for, them he soon wearied of, and he quickly learned to perceive that none had the Iceland falcon's breast muscles of steel, its long, wide wings, and quiescent strength. But it was the most delightful thing possible to see how the young falcons were trained to hunt according to the wise rules of King Modus, when they had reached the time that their memory of freedom wore off, and they sat heavy and blind, dozing on their perches. The first thing was to accustom them again to fly, but with a cord on the foot, till they had learned at the falconer's cry to swoop down upon the red-cloth dummy fitted with a pair of large heron wings, which he swung in the air on a string in oddly deliberate circles. That was fine to see, and to which he had tied the breast of a quail or a piece of chicken. This the falcons afterwards devoured, the rage at their confinement being dulled by their thirst of blood. Soon they grew so accustomed to this procedure that they never strained at their cord. No gleam of wildness remained in their eyes. They at once looked about calmly for the decoy, and only rose according to rule, ascending in a curve at the proper time to swoop down indolently and playfully in a wide circle. And when the cord was taken off, they hardly seemed to notice. The time had now come to train them for hunting, each for its particular quarry, the smaller for quail, partridge or sparrows, the larger for hare or heron or kites, the ignoble kites which had the nature of crows along with their powerful talons and beaks and which could never be tamed to eat at a nightly board. First they were given decoys like their quarry, with a piece of their favourite food inside for them to search out, then disabled birds, which they could strike their claws into at once and tear to pieces in half-roused fury, and so on to prey that was harder to catch, until they learned to enjoy the intoxication of the hunt. Their old wild instincts awoke once more in full strength, but controlled and ennobled, so that they calmly dropped their dying quarry after a short mad drink of blood, and ate only from their ornamented dishes, without greediness, 
as is fitting for the birds of a night. Their eyes grew indolent and proud, and took on the colour of the day, black when their hood was lifted off, brightening to molten gold, when they rose in the sunlight, burning with flakes of fire above their shriek of their prey. They bent caressingly toward Reynolds' brown hand, but one of them was like the Iceland falcon, with a weary king-like disdain in its glance, and he grew disgusted with them all pressed their beaks harshly shut when they tried to play, and threw them from him carelessly and mimicked the shriek of the kite, so that they trembled with disquietude and left the avery with men's curses behind them and the wide brown plain before them. Sir Ingeron rode out hunting every day, nearly always wearing his red, gold-embroidered glove for only the bell-tinkling flight of the Iceland falcon could awaken some within him and cause him to breathe the sharp, volatile morning air with the light as if he drank living wine. One day, the falcon had struck a heron, bleeding into a swamp behind a thicket, where the huntsman found it and cracked its neck. But the falcon itself was gone, either lured after a new quarry, or recoiling from the brown water, or... Capricariously, letting itself be lifted and carried along with the wind. In vain they searched, in vain they called it by the prettiest names. In vain they made the notes of the horn rebound from every hill. Sir Ingerand smote the mouth of the head falconer bloody with his red glove, and rode straight home across the tussocks of the swamp with his lips shut more sharply, and his eyelids sunk over the listless pupils more gloomily than ever. The falcon they did not find, but Renard found it, its jest caught in a wild rose bush, awaiting death by starvation with its grip fast on a branch, one wing drooping, the other lifted defiantly, its narrow head stretched threateningly forward with the eyes fixed and beak sharp. A splendid sight it was among the blood-red berries, Reynolds' hand trembled with eagerness as he loosened the jess from the thorns, and as the bells tinkled around his fingers, and the ring with Sir Ingeron's crest, and he cried aloud with joy when the sharp claws cut into his sinewy arm, and he felt that it was his. The falcon of broadest breast and longest wings and proudest eyes of burning gold. It was the more his in that he never would be able to show it to anyone, for he knew that strict laws protected the sport of the nobles. In the woods, he would have to build a cage for it. Early in the morning, he would steal a feather before the bird had shaken off its chill. They would go together across the open with searching looks directed at the whitish heavens. They would grow fond of each other as they let the sunlight rise and fall over their heads, and the wind carry their silent thoughts along, and the falcon would never miss its red glove or the constraint of its pearl soon hood. He tied it again and ran down to the pond, returning shortly with a duck which he had killed with a stone. The falcon took it, and Redod's brain grew numb with intoxication, for that was a sign that it did not despise him, that it was willing to be his. It became his. It bent its head forward, listening 
with tranquil wide open eyes when the frosty branches cracked under his step in the stillness of morning. It hopped lightly down from its cage and stretched out towards his hand, beating its wings as for flight, but it did not fly. That was only a reminder, and therewith they hurried out to the softly glowing expanse of the moor. Their eyes glanced searchingly towards the dark red welkin. Black lay the hills and thinning thickets, and the trees slept, their boughs heavy, with silent birds. But the heavens grew brighter, flaming with golden red, and the line of the plain turned to blue, and the owls sped close to the ground, seeking its covert. And the daybirds stretched their wings and chirped softly because of the cold, and dark their flights cut through the gleaming air. But Reynold and his falcon went quickly on, for these were sparrows and thrushes, no prey fit for them. Down toward the marshes sounded already the drawling cry of the herons and wide-circling beat of their long wings. Yonder was the quarry they sought. Then the falcon was cast with breast already expanded and wings prepared to beat, and Reynolds saw it gilded by the sun as he stood with blinded eyes and dizzy head, while the bird crouched against the deep blue, and heard how the clang of its bells mocked the shout of the herons. They whirred like wheels in their terror. Now they tended to shoot down to the shore and hide their long necks and stupid frightened heads with backward pointing tufts under the dark wooden banks. Now, they tried in wavering uncertainty to rise up in a spiral, thrusting in their broad wings to attain higher than the enemy could follow, and they swerved like reeds in the terror of their pale hearts. But the falcon singled out at the start one of the strongest, one of those that flew immediately aloft, because it loved to prove its strength and to feel sharp, light air under its wings, and it rose as fast and straight as if circling around a sunbeam. Soon, it was uppermost, smaller than a sparrow it looked, but something in the poise of the wings. In the gathered strength of the body made one divine the sparkling savagery of its eye, its outspread talons. Of a sudden, it fell, heavy as steel, on the defenceless upturned neck of the quarry, and they dropped like a single stone, hardly once eddying aside by a wing's breadth. Then Renaud ran and swam and waded so as to arrive before the heron, which had been stunned by the stroke, and before it could gather itself together, and in the wilderness of its desperation make use of its pointed bill. The falcon gave it the death blow sharply and swiftly, turning its great eyes, already tranquil, on its master for it did not care to soil its feathers with blood, and waiting to have the warm heart given to it. Afterwards it did not fly any more that day. When Renaud cast it and ran ahead with a shout, it only took a couple of wing strokes and lighted again on the lad's shoulder close to his laughing face with proud composure. It seemed to despise old play, and Renaud soon made an end, his expression taking on the far-gazing seriousness of the falcon. He grew more fond of it than he had ever been, of anything, 
It seemed to him that it was his own soul, his longing, with its broad wings and its glance confident of victory. But there was suffering in his love. The dismal premonition of a misfortune. Sometimes he was afraid that the bird would fly away from him in a fit of indifference, would vanish in a mocking sound of bells, and that would be his death. Such an empty existence. Or it seemed to him that the falcon was for honour, gleaming with sunlight against the blue, which rested itself on his shoulder for new exploits, and in the midst of his joy, he was oppressed with his own insignificance, so that he hardly dared to look at it. There was grief at his heart, that the bird would never share his delight, that its glance would never melt warmly into his, and he fled to the realm of dreams. He laid himself down in the midst of the moor, with the red heather under his head, and the clouds glided past like human destiny, heavy and light, gathered within a firm outline or scattered on high, with the wind's invisible hand over at their shoulder, while the bushes bent their rustling golden branches and Reynard told stories to the falcon. King Arthur was come again, once more from out of the British sea, was handed to him his sword Excalibur, blue as the chill nightly heavens. His twelve knights lifted their heavy heads from the stone table and shook off their sleep. The earth resounded with their tread. Gareth was there, the prince's son, who put on the attire of a scullery boy and turned Lynette's ringing scorn into love. Renaud was there, too was of noble birth. His horse danced beneath him, and the falcon which now slept with sunken head sat high on his hand and sought his glance with eyes that gleamed with joy and the yellow sunlight of heroic story. But the clouds, gilded past like human destiny, were driven dark once over another into a gigantic vault from the apertures of which fell sunbeams pale and sharp as spears, and the falcon dreamed the dismal dreams of impotent wrath and waked with a shriek. Before long, some roving lads chanced to see Sir Engoran's falcon on Renaud's hand, and the knight's men seized him and bore him to the castle. His heart froze within him when they took away the falcon, motionless and proud as ever, without a turn of its bended neck or a look from its cold, calm eyes. They took it to its master, but he had not a single caress for the missing favourite that had let itself be touched by ignoble hands. Sir Ingeran looked down at Renaud in silence, and more and more, clearly in his thoughts, took form the memory of an old hunting lore from the time when the nobleman's foot pressed, still shod, on the neck of the common people and his enjoyments fluttered unassailable around his shoulders, and Sir Engoran's eyebrows contracted about the certainty that the old law had never been repealed. The law commanded that he who stole a falcon with a knight's crest on its chest should pay twelve souls of silver, or six ounces of flesh from his ribs under the beak of a hungry bird of prey. Sir Engeran knew of Renaud's poverty, and, 
looking at his naked brown breast, extended his hand and touched it with an experimental, unfeeling gesture. He then sent a message to the neighbouring castle which reared its pointed roof above the woods and invited the Sinischal and his two daughters to be his guests three days later and see some falcons fly after they, by their presence, had heightened the solemnity of punishing a thief and they were to come before daybreak. Renard's eyes had widened before the darkness of the prison. They were black and motionless, and the gleaming pupils contracted but slowly to mirror the thin-worn clouds and rising sun of the east. Behind Sir Engerand was born the Iceland falcon, its talons fiercely clasped in the glove, with the hood over its wakeful and famished glances that had not seen food for three days. But further behind curved a line of colour that flamed and burned, six bright horses almost blue in the gloaming, were led by pages at a run, with cloths of red velvet on their bending necks. Red was the wagon which they drew, and within it gold shone heavy on the tender bosoms and slender arms of the Senschal's daughters. Six damsels rode after it, with hair blonde as grain, their pointed feet playing beneath the hem of their kirtles. Six huntsmen blew calls, which seemed to dance and swing like wheels from the mouths of the crooked horns. The contours of the plain danced with them and shot past one another in wine-coloured mist, while the clouds above had glittered borders like the wings of butterflies. The party formed into a semicircle, plume by plume, shoulder by shoulder, around a bush where the captive was tied. The horsecloths flapped in the winds, the red taking on depth in the shadow, heavy as hopeless yearning. The red burning in the light gazed the clamour of victory. The maiden's delicate necks leaned forward out of the cavern, wagon, and their conical hoods flowed into one with the descending line of their shoulders. They were like herons, thought Renard, and he almost expected to hear them add a shrill shriek when the notes of the horns fell far away like hurtled stones, and all became silent. But when he saw them more plainly with their thin straight lips and strange dreaming eyes, which were always levelled in a chill ecstasy on something infinitely distant, and their white indolent hands in their laps, and the long folds of their garments, they seemed to him wondrously beautiful, like the most gorgeous saints' pictures with a dimming glow of wax tapers at their feet, and it pained him that they should see him bound. He let his gaze leap further, past the damsels, shy, jaunty birds that he wanted to frighten with a whistle past the red faces and inquisitively gaping mouths of the grooms, past the brown plain, where he had run himself tired and dreamed himself tired. He knew what doom awaited him, but when the Iceland falcon was borne forward, and he realized it was this which was to exact the penalty, he laughed in his joy, and his heart throbbed with pride. As when he possessed the bird, and the long sunny days, and the plain with the listening winds, and the swaying trees of autumn yellow. When the falcon beheld the light and turned to look around, 
it gathered its strength for flight, expecting to be swung on the arm of the bearer, while its glances rapidly sought its prey in the air. These glances were sharp and fierce with hunger, flaming as with sparks, and they had no memory in their depths. They recognized no one. But Reynolds' eyes were fixed in anxious searching on those of the bird, and were filled with tears of sorrow at not meeting them. They should have mirrored his life's bold longing, his contempt, his dreams on the red heather. But they only waited greedily for their prey, grimly and coldly as the human spirit of curiosity or jesting on the thin lips of Sir Engerrand. He felt his sorrow smart more bitterly than before and turned aside his head to recover himself, his eyelids closed and his thoughts fluttering. He lay thus while the herald proclaimed the law, Twelve souls of silver, six ounces of flesh over the heart, thus does Sir Engeron safeguard the pastime of the nobles. He did not look up when his skin was cut so that the scent of blood should attract the falcon, and when it sank its beak in his breast he gave no cry, merely trembled so that the bird's eyes flamed up in rage, and its wings were spread out as if to beat. The Senthachal's daughters leaned their heads forward with a gleam of interest in their strange, dreaming eyes, but they did not raise their hands from their laps, and their garments lay as before in tranquil folds. The horses snorted at the smell of blood and stamped on the frosty ground, so that the red horsecloths flapped against the parlour of the deepening blue. But Renard lay silent, and the huntsmen stood needlessly, with expanded cheeks and horns to their mouths, ready to drown his cries. The first agony had clutched at his finest fibres. It seemed as if his heart would come out with them. But afterwards he had grown numb, almost to the degree of pleasure. And while the blood flowed warmly from the wound, and the pointed beak tore at his breast, Renard dreamed himself into the high blue heaven of his visions, until he understood everything, death and honour, feeling how it burned and dazzled the yellow sunlight of heroic story. When Sir Engeron thought that the legal six ounces had been paid, he gave his men a sign to blow, and the falcon was lifted off, sated with blood, its eyes filled once more with tranquil pride. And the troop set itself in motion more gaily even than before toward the sedge that gleamed yellow in the distance. But Renard could not be wakened. He had dreamed himself to death, and they merely loosened him and let him lie with the red heather under his head. The Iceland falcon, however, might never sit on its master's hand, for Sir Ingeron did not care to drink of a cup wherever another's lips had pressed a kiss. And this concludes The Falcon. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's tale. Life was so tough back then, and the ruling folk were cruel, heartless, and petty. Our hunter today was indeed the prey, like the heron that the falcons claim their own, the Hunter Renard was exactly that. I really enjoyed how this tale explored the love the huntsman had in the beauty of the falcon, 
the adoration in its physical design, and the understanding that this animal could never feel the same respect or admiration as he does for it, and only saw him as another piece of flesh to devour. What I really enjoy about Swedish tales is the focus not on a clear narrative with a beginning, middle, and end climax, but rather a spending of time on our main character, their thoughts, their feelings, and the bittersweet and authentic consequences that they experience by the real world they live in. There is no lesson learned by the hunter. There are no saving graces or main character plot armor, but a dry and almost bitter ending, the death of the hunter, albeit in a dreamlike state. This really marks a quality tale, and one written all the way back in 1923. Such quality! Mm-mm, I love it. Mates, if you enjoyed today's tale and have a couple of seconds spare, leave an iTunes review, and if you really like what I do, swing on by my Patreon page to support the show directly. Speaking of supporting me and the show, it's time to thank the legends that support this show. First up is my old night tea titan, Maya. Thank you, Maya, for your never-ending support. Your constant monthly donation means I can cover off subscription costs like nobody's business and use whatever is left over to update software, buy new plugins, and all around improve the show. And for that, mate, I am so, so grateful, especially around the remastering and audio editing tools. Absolute godsend, Maya. Thank you so much for being brilliant and supporting me at this tier level. Thank you. My white tea warlord, Lesosaurus Rex. Thanks, mate, for supporting me in the way you do. I've been able to update my website properly thanks to your kindness, and I'm in the process of going through and recategorizing all the website posts. Unfortunately, during the migration, over 600 posts had lost their tags, which means I've got to go through each one and retag them so it's easier for people to navigate and so the website knows what podcast episode goes where. Yeah, quite a task, but a good cuppa and some music is all I need to sort this one out. Cheers, mate, and thank you for your support, Lesa. You're bloody marvellous. And my next white tea warlord, Paige Kramer, the lovely lady who knows what's what in the world of facts. Thank you for your ongoing messages, mate. It's a joy reading and responding, genuinely so. I've been using your support to further update website plugins and pay for hosting subscriptions. An absolute godsend of support that you're supporting me directly in. And just like Leza and Maya, your support really pushes this show the extra mile, mate. Thank you so, so much. And my lightning in a bottle supporters, my L Grey enforcers, I have Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker 1, and Divided by Zero. Thank you all for being your awesome selves. And supporting me in the way you do. A special shout out to Aiden Devlin and Rue, who also support the show. Thank you so much, mates. Have a wonderful Wednesday, folks, and you'll catch me Friday for some more tales. And I can't wait. As always, folks, till next we meet. meet.